2: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with
1: Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
2: Some of my most important mentors was people as different as Janet Reno and Robert Mueller. They were very different people, but they had at their core something that said, we got to follow the facts and the law, period.
0: That's Lisa Monaco. She was the Homeland Security Advisor to President Barack Obama and was the first woman to serve as the Assistant Attorney General for National Security at DOJ. She joins me to tackle your questions along with Ann Milgram, who is the former attorney general of New Jersey and served as a prosecutor at the state, federal, and local levels. They're here to wrap up our series on the criminal justice system with our all question and answer show. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Ann Milgram and Lisa Monaco are both extremely experienced former law enforcement officials. Besides being the AG of New Jersey, Ann was an assistant district attorney in the DA's office here in Manhattan. Lisa, besides being the Homeland Security Advisor to President Obama, served as counsel to Attorney General Janet Reno in the late 1990s, and was the chief of staff of Robert Mueller when he was running the FBI. They both happen to teach at NYU Law School as well, like I do. Besides being deeply accomplished, they're both good personal friends of mine, and some of my favorite people in the world. So just FYI, when we taped this interview a few weeks back, I was pretty seriously under the weather. That's why I might sound congested. But the show must go on, and it did. Let's get to your questions. And you had a lot of them. Hey, Preet.
1: This is Barbara from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I am, I think, technically a millennial. I was born in 1986. And as much as I hate to give credit to the current president for anything good, I am one of the probably large group of people who has learned a lot about the government recently since he took office, since there's so much to pay attention to. And I was wondering if you could take a minute on your show to explain what a U.S. attorney actually is and what you do and where that fits into the general hierarchy and universe of the government. Thanks so much. Love your show. Please keep it up. You're doing awesome.
0: So, Barbara, thanks for your question. There are 93 U.S. Attorneys in America. Each of them is nominated by the President of the United States, like I was, and has to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And they have all jurisdiction over all federal crimes in their district. Most have a criminal division, also a civil division. And, um, you know, where I was, the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York is not just Manhattan, although I was often referred to as a Manhattan U.S. Attorney. We also had jurisdiction in the Bronx and several other counties to the north of New York City, including Westchester, Putnam, Sullivan, and some others. The usual docket for any U.S. attorney's office runs the gamut from gang prosecutions to public corruption prosecutions to securities fraud. You name it, we do it. But generally speaking, U.S. attorney's offices don't do sort of low-level, street-level kind of crimes. Those are left to the district attorney's offices. U.S. attorney's offices have more resources. We have a lot more access to investigative tools, to get information from other states, if there's evidence there, and around the world. My assistant US attorneys, for example, traveled, I think, in any given year to 48 or 49 different countries, because as crime goes increasingly global, the long arm of the law has to reach farther as well. And so there's a lot of travel, and there's a lot of resource-intensive, long-term kinds of investigations. You know, you don't bring a case of serious accounting fraud against a company without you know a lot of time spent by both assistant U.S. attorneys and also by federal agents.
1: One of the things that it's hard to sort of understand is that the state and local system is separate from the federal system. And the federal system, while it's what we read about and we hear about a lot, is really a pretty small percentage of the overall criminal justice system in America. And so most day-to-day crime, something happens on the street a 911 call gets made, the police make an arrest. That is state and local crime. And it's very serious from things like murder, bank robbery, robberies, sexual assaults, anything like that. But it often, first of all, doesn't cross state lines. It's something that's pretty localized. And second of all, it's the kind of thing where the police immediately respond and make an arrest. And then that goes to the local prosecutor or the state AG. Whereas with federal crimes, in my experience. We did long-term investigations without making arrests. We had leads that came to us or reasons why we were investigating crimes. And we did long, complex cases. And so, you know, when I was a federal prosecutor, I prosecuted human trafficking crimes mostly. They spanned multiple countries. The priorities do change with administrations, political administrations. And so it's a really interesting question as we look at specific states and local AGs and and local prosecutors thinking about how to prosecute crimes. And I guess— You know, that's one thing that's worth thinking about at some point.
0: Uh, So, you know what? We have a question from Twitter that actually is totally on point on this. Uh, And the question is, I'm curious about the hierarchy of a major federal investigation. Who does what and why? From foot soldiers to the prosecutor at the top, who will stop at nothing in the name of justice, truth, and the American way? Please give us a peek behind the scenes. Go
2: any major federal investigation is going to have a number of investigative agencies involved. And the lead is likely to be the FBI, right? So I worked on the Enron prosecution and investigation, and we had FBI agents leading that investigation, folks who were accountants, who were really sophisticated investigators. And then they had U.S. attorneys. And those agents would work every day to go through everything from the documents involved in that prosecution to sitting down with witnesses and people who they ultimately were going to flip, that's a prosecutorial term, to be on the what we call Team USA to testify for the government.
1: I think in my experience, you know, echoing what Lisa said, is that In any case, there are line prosecutors who do the day-to-day work of the case along with the agents. You know, I've worked with FBI, ICE, Secret Service. There are all the federal agencies when you're a federal prosecutor. And then you get to the point when you're going to charge a case. And there are a number of levels of review. My trial chief, when I was at DOJ, he would ask questions until you got to the point where you said, I don't know. And, you know, day one, you said it after two questions. And after six months or a year, you could go hours You know, without saying I don't know. So
2: what might be interesting for folks here on this is regardless of the sophistication of the case, the process kind of works the same. Whether it's Enron or a low-level drug case, the law enforcement folks investigate the case. They bring and they present to the prosecutors the evidence that they've gathered. And then the prosecutors determine, is there a crime made out here? And then what they'll do is they will draft what's called a prosecution memo. We would call them PROS memos. And they'd lay out, here's why we think we can prove this crime. But the best ones were ones that also anticipated what the defense might be.
1: And there's also a check and balance in that, right? I mean there's law enforcement agents who are out doing search warrants, who are out gathering evidence, they're talking to witnesses, and they come up with a view of the crime or the case and they bring it to a prosecutor who then has to say, even at the line level, do you think there's sufficient evidence to charge and go forward? And if the prosecutor agrees, you then go forward to your supervisors and ask for –
2: And we should explain what the line means, right? So a line prosecutor, it's the lowest level. It's the person who just stands up in court every day, who meets with the agents, who meets with the defendants, meets with the victims, and is the person on the front line, you know, answering from the judge, from the victims. And it's Um, where every prosecutor starts. That's exactly right. And every single one of us sitting here today was a line prosecutor at one time. So... You know, I was a line prosecutor, a baby prosecutor as a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., and the unique responsibility of federal prosecutors in D.C. was to be both the federal prosecutor and the state prosecutor, the local prosecutor, because of the unique place that Washington, D.C. is in our system. And so as a first, you know, first year, newly minted assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., I did everything from... Shoplifting and prostitution and low-level drug crimes and you know low-level street crimes. It was like night court. Remember that old oh, show, yeah. Night Court? It was like that and only every ju- day. The
0: judge in Night Court just passed away. It was very that's, sad.
2: That's very that's true. true. That's I worked very true. the lobster shift when I was in the DA's office, the l- which was the
0: what shift? They
1: called it the lobster shift because allegedly, and I've I don't know if this is true, but lobsters are awake in the middle of the night, and we worked from one a.m. till nine a.m. And I'll tell you what the most brutal part was. Well, first of all, (laughs) everything is funnier in the middle of the night. But the worst part was that you took your, quote, lunch break at like 6.30 in the morning and you came back at 8 for an hour. And that hour was like... We didn't oh, have the punishing. lobster shift yep. in D.C.
0: But did you eat lobster?
1: No. <laughs> because, it had, because It actually had nothing to do <laughs> with lobster.
0: It seems, to, it seems to be like very impressive. It's wrongly named.
1: Lobsters. Yeah. Well, it was named because lobsters are up at the same time as you are. But basically, you know, people were arrested in Manhattan. There used to be a lot of crime. And it. There was a rule, and there still is a rule in New York City, that you have to go through the system within 24 hours. And so you're arrested at 3 a.m. You have to be arraigned, which means you're brought before a judge and asked, do you plead guilty or not guilty? And there's a bail decision made. Will you be detained prior to trial or released prior to trial, which are critically important questions. And that has to be done within 24 hours in New York City. And thankfully, in many places in America now, it has to be done within 24 hours. But that meant we were up in the middle of the night.
0: Okay. So, Anne, after you worked the lobster shift, you did other things. and you were the attorney general of a state, New Jersey. Lisa, you advised the president of the United States personally on terrorism matters. So you guys are seasoned prosecutors. You did this for a long time in a very high stakes way. Because my question is, when you were first starting, how scared and nervous were you about having this responsibility of deciding who should be prosecuted and for what? How'd you deal with that? So
2: it's pretty heavy stuff even when the st- I think the thing that most prosecutors learn is even when the stakes are relatively low, right? So the shoplifting crime or the low-level crime you still hold that person's fate pretty much in your hands. Which is why it's so important that prosecutors have an ethical and moral compass, I would argue.
0: Did you think about that? I did. You did.
2: I absolutely did. And you know, it Came home to roost in small ways that I later used in cases of much greater consequence, right, where the stakes were higher, right. So, as a first year prosecutor, what we call the baby prosecutor in Washington, D.C., each one of the prosecutors was assigned to a courtroom. We had to handle the docket that appeared before that judge every day. And that could be 50 to 100 cases every day that were just cycling through the court system. And every one of us would trundle over from the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. every morning with a bunch of case files. We called them jackets. And we'd arrive every morning in our appointed courtrooms, and we'd have to basically process those cases. And if it sounds a little bit like a conveyor belt, that's true. But the challenge was, as a prosecutor, not to treat it that way, right? You had to make sure you were focusing on whether or not you were doing justice in every single case. And that can be hard to do when you've got that volume going on. So the defense attorneys in those cases, each also had to do a, a bit of a volume business and there were assigned cases and some of them had dozens of cases that they had to deal with. And what you found out is, as a baby prosecutor is the decisions you made In those instances, while they were low level and the stakes were relatively low, you had to apply some judgment, and that would be important later on in bigger cases.
1: Yeah, when I started in the Manhattan DA's office, I really, you know, it was a whole new world. And it's terrifying to think that behind every case is someone's life, and you have to decide what's the right outcome. You know, I started with the most low level crimes in new york city which were at the time we called them fair beats and they were <laughs> the predominant form at the time was something called token sucking which you know at the fair at the time i mean this is many years ago was like a dollar 50 and The crime itself, it was before we had Metro cards in New York City. So we had tokens, which were the little metal. (laughs) They looked like quarters. And what would happen is that people would go into the subway system. They would put a token in. And when you walk through the turnstile, it didn't always turn completely through, which meant that the token didn't drop to the bottom receptacle. And so that meant that a person who was watching this could come up behind someone, you know, enterprising, I would argue in many ways, would come up behind you. And there were two ways to commit the crime. One was you'd take a straw and you'd put it into the receptacle and you'd suck up the token. The other way was just people would put their mouth on the receptacle and just suck up the and token. Suck up the token. Suck it up. <laughs> they would often get caught by the police or they would try to sell it to somebody. And these were the first cases I did. And, you know, I mean, I would stand in arraignment court and look at this and someone would be have been arrested one time for token sucking. And I would think that
2: it, it's wait, so it, gross. Is that, is that the
1: statute? <laughs> token sucking? It's called theft of services. Okay. Um, and by the way, this has now changed in Manhattan. The Manhattan district attorney <laughs> right. has but, recently but, said he but, won't do but this. was your
0: view, My view about that crime was what?
1: Was that um, if someone was willing to go through that, that I really didn't want to prosecute those cases, <laughs> that I felt that someone deserved to... Take the token and go. It was, I mean, there were two ways to do it. One of which was more gross than the other, but I, I sort of felt like, and, and remember that people get a misdemeanor. But it's a crime. Though. It's a crime. But people get a misdemeanor criminal conviction that goes with them for the rest of their life.
0: We'll be back with Anne and Lisa after this. Everyone likes to save money, but that can be hard when you're in debt. One way to start saving is with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. Lightstream is an online lender with a simple loan process and excellent rates. And for people with good credit, there are no fees. Their credit card consolidation loan starts from 5.89% APR with autopay. Because you know, it's summer, you might be down by the shore where everything's all right. You do some eating out, you rent a car, the credit card bill can sneak up on you. That's where Lightstream can help. Now, my listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Preet. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Preet. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. We're back with Ann Milgram and Lisa Monaco tackling your questions. Here's a question from Twitter from someone named Brooks, which asks, defense attorney here, you're okay for a prosecutor. Thank you. I would love to hear your take on the role and responsibility of the ethical prosecutor. From Fed AG to the county-level line assistant DA, is Philly's new prosecutor the future? So there's a new prosecutor in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who's making a lot of news in the various ways. What do you guys think about that?
1: This is Anne. I've been a state, local, and federal prosecutor. And I think criminal prosecution is vital, obviously, to public safety. But I also think that as we've thought about how to make the system better, we have not thought enough about the role of the prosecutor. And so all of us focus an incredible amount on the police. But if the three of us are honest, 96 percent of all cases plead and the prosecutors control. 96 percent 96 percent and the okay. prosecutors control the pleas they control what the crime is that people plead to what the sentence is
0: so why is that bad
1: so the problem with the pleas i mean let, let's separate it's it. not
2: necessarily if the prosecutor yeah. is acting responsibly and ethically and really exercising their power right. yeah but here's the thing the biggest point is
1: that prosecutors are controlling everything in the system. And so where it used to be an adversarial system that things went to trial and and evidence was put to the test, that does not exist in most cases. And there are times that it does, but most times it doesn't. And I talk to prosecutors all the time, local prosecutors. And think about the way the system works. A crime is committed, 911 gets called, or a witness flags a police officer down, the police officer makes an arrest. That then gets pushed to the prosecutor. Those cases are overwhelmingly in America charged. That case then goes on to being a guilty plea. And so it is a conveyor belt that moves very quickly, particularly with low-level crimes, in which people are, have criminal convictions that have huge consequences for voting, but, but, for employment. But, 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 but Anne, but
0: Ann, you were a prosecutor for a long time. Did you think you were doing the wrong thing?
1: So I think there's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, when I was a line prosecutor or a local prosecutor – A hundred percent. You look at the case in front of you, a police officer has made an arrest. They're showing you evidence of a crime. It's really easy to think that the right thing is to go forward to put someone and look, it's a one way system. It's a funnel. And the way we treat people is incarceration. And so we should be really honest that that's the way the system goes. Police officer makes an arrest, prosecutor charges, judge sentences you to jail or prison. That's the model that we have. When I became AG and I started looking from a much higher level, I asked a different question, which was not are we getting convictions, are we making arrests, but are we actually making the public safer? And I think we have a problem in the country that we equate public safety with crime. And public safety is not just the absence of crime. Public safety is do you feel safe sending your kid to school? Do you feel safe going around the corner to get a carton of milk. And I love the police. I ran the Camden Police Department. I feel hugely invested in the work of law enforcement officers in our country. But they're making a value judgment about How do you make the public safe in that community? And the prosecutors are, as a rule, just signing off. And so if we really care about public safety, then the questions are, how do we stop people from committing more crimes once they've come through the system? How do we stop kids from basically getting involved in the criminal justice system? And who do we give criminal records to, knowing that criminal records have huge consequences? Look, I believe very strongly that there are people who belong in jail and in prison. But I also think there's a process by which many people end up in this system. And what the Philly DA is doing is he's basically saying, wait, Who needs to go into the system? And I I think this is the right question. Who poses a risk to public safety and should be incarcerated? Who doesn't and doesn't need to be incarcerated? Who suffers from mental illness, substance abuse, homelessness? Those are the three main drivers of criminal justice, particularly low level offenses. And so he's asking these questions. And look, I personally believe he's going to be fantastic on serious and violent crime, which I know we all worry about, but it is less than 10% of all crime in America. And so he will be great on that. What he's dealing with now is how do we deal with the other 90%? Anyone who's trying to think differently about it and think creatively deserves at least our attention and us paying attention to, are there different ways to to run a criminal justice system?
2: So, So I think that if we're talking about the federal criminal justice process or the criminal justice process generally being a conveyor belt, the one speed bump in that conveyor belt is the prosecutor. Everyone has a view. But that's
0: what you used to be.
2: That's exactly right. Were you a speed bump? So at times I was, and so I'll tell you a story about that. Right. So everyone has in their head Clarence Darrow and the you know the role of the defense attorney as being the buttress against injustice, and that's right. In our in uh, our adversarial system, it's very very important that you have defense attorneys who are willing to mount a vigorous defense for individuals who in our system deserve it. Right, you're presumed innocent until proven guilty, but the prosecutors also play a very critical role in that, and it's very important. As I learned early on as a baby prosecutor, to appreciate that role of the prosecutor as you know having a conscience about this. Right, so I was part of the conveyor belt as an junior assistant United States Attorney in Washington D.C. prosecuting low level crime. And it was a steady conveyor belt, literally hundreds of cases every day went through that court system. And I had to stand up in court and be Lisa Monaco for the United States every day for cases upon cases upon cases. And the system assigned a publicly appointed and publicly paid defense attorney for all of those defenses, for all those defendants rather. And those defense attorneys had to do, frankly, a volume business, right? They got paid 65 bucks an hour to represent these defendants. And many times, and at least one in my recollection, I remember this very vividly, a defense attorney coming to me and said, "Miss Monica, we're ready to plead. And I opened the case jacket, the case file, and I looked at the police report. And for the life of me, I couldn't see that a crime was made out in that written police report.
0: So why was the crime charged?
2: So it's a good question. And one we had to resolve before the judge. So this defendant, I think it was a shoplifting case, had been arrested the previous night by the uh, local police department. And a what's called a PD-163, Police Department Form 163, had been filled out by the arresting officer. And it was my job as the prosecutor to read that report and tell the judge what crime had been made out and what crime we were charging this defendant with. As I looked at that police report, I literally could not make out a crime in what that police report said. And so I said to the defense counsel, would you like to file a motion, counsel? Meaning, would you like to challenge the fact that there was a crime made out in this police report?
0: But people don't usually do that, right?
2: I said, counsel, would you like to file a motion, and defense counsel said, no, Miss Monica, we're ready to go. Meaning he wanted to get in the door, get his plea, move his defendant along because he thought in his defense, in this defense counsel's defense, that it was in his client's interest to get a plea early from the prosecutor. Because that it would, would be, be me. me. Because it would be a better sentence. It'd be a, it would right. be a better deal if he came in early. Did and, you say it again? And I looked at that police report and I said, really, counsel, don't you want to file a motion? And he repeated again, no, we're ready to go. And it was up to me, Preet, to say to the judge, because at that point, the prosecutor is the only one who stands between whether or not that case goes forward or not. The judge actually doesn't have a say in the matter at that point. It's entirely in the government's control, the prosecutor's control, whether or not that case goes forward. And so my choice was let it go forward or dismiss it, and I dismissed the case. Now, the stakes were low, so I'm no hero here. But if you can't, as the government, as the prosecutor, say in good faith to the judge that you've got a case to be made out later when it goes to trial, you've got to dismiss that case. And it was a low-level case, but if you don't learn that lesson early as a prosecutor, that situation is going to repeat itself later on. Who do you think is the most powerful person in the
1: criminal justice system? The prosecutor. The prosecutor. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I think that the, even us just saying this out loud is an important thing because I feel like most of America does not understand
0: why is it the prosecutor? Because
1: they have the power to charge the case, to bring the case, and then if it's a plea, the prosecutor decides what the sentence is and what the charge is. And right. So it really is. And the
2: terms of the plea completely.
0: You know, so given the prosecutors are the most important people in the system, what's your advice to line prosecutors? How should they do their jobs?
2: Don't lose your compass. you got to have a compass, right? Understand what are the grounding principles here. And it's to do justice, right? It's a, it's hokey, but...
1: I agree with Lisa completely that I think the single most important thing a prosecutor can do, local, federal, is to basically do what they think is right. And if you think a case shouldn't be charged, if the evidence isn't there, if you can't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, if if it's unfair, period, that case should be dismissed. But the thing that gives me pause a little bit is that I think... A lot of the challenges we think about with the system are systemic, that when you're a line prosecutor and you're a new prosecutor and you see just the case in front of you, you know, to see that that case should be prosecuted and what the outcome should be and to prosecute it to the fullest extent makes sense. And so it's pretty easy to go down that road and for that to be a very legitimate and just thing to do in the moment. The harder thing for me, and I I think about this a lot, is that when I became AG in New Jersey... I literally oversaw the whole criminal justice system. And so all the cases we brought, I started asking, who are we prosecuting? Why are we prosecuting them? A prior AG had taken over the Camden Police Department that at the time was the most dangerous city in America. And I wanted to know why we were prosecuting crimes every single day. Why is the city not safer? And I don't expect a line attorney or someone who's just starting to deal with this. The story I'll tell you guys about Camden is that, you know, I became AG on, um, June 27th, 2007, five days later, it's July 4th. I spend the day at my family's house. Um, it's uneventful. I wake up on July 5th, and I read every newspaper in New Jersey at 6 o'clock in the morning. I did it every day. And I see that a guy named Wee Coleman has been killed, and he's been killed at 11 o'clock. He's living in a Oldsmobile that's abandoned outside a housing project in Camden, and there's a guy that walks up with a AK-47. It's literally an assassination. And then I find out that he had just turned 12, right? right? And so I start asking all these questions. And I want to know, who is he? What's happening? What's going on? Who are the leads? And first of all, we, we knew almost nothing about both Pee Wee and the people who had done the shooting. And second of all, there was no way we could have prevented it, given the way we were operating in Camden. And there was no way we could have solved it. We never solved that crime. And it just gnawed at me for months, this idea of what is justice. Justice is public safety. It's not being able to say we've convicted someone. It's not being able to say we've made an arrest. And I think that this is what's really hard when you start as a line prosecutor because you have to learn how to be a prosecutor. But at the end of the day, the question is, are we making the public safer and are we doing it in a way that's just and fair?
0: So we've been talking about how prosecutors do their jobs. Uh, What if you're on the other side? You've engaged in conduct, maybe criminal, maybe not. What advice do you have to someone considering, you know, whether or not to engage counsel? Who should they hire? Who do they pick?
2: So at a very basic level, you should hire somebody who has experience in that system, right? Somebody who's a repeat player who understands whether you're in New York City, whether you're in you know, Washington, D.C., whether you're in Los Angeles, whether you're in Dubuque. Have somebody who understands that system. Is
0: it important to have someone as your lawyer who used to be a prosecutor in the office that is investigating you.
2: I think it can be very helpful if if that prosecutor has good relations. Exactly yep. right. Yep. If that person has some good relationships. But it th- is not it's not sufficient to have, you know, once served in the office.
1: My view on getting legal representation is when you're not sure, and look, I get a lot of calls, I'm sure you guys get a lot of calls, which are yeah. basically like, what do I do? Or how should I think about this? Who should I hire? And my advice to people is usually a few different things, which is number one, the point at which you're going to pick up the phone and make a call to someone who's a lawyer and say, what should I do? It means you might want to retain a lawyer, <laughs> right? It might right. It, mean, it means yeah. you're at a point where you're right. not sure. <laughs> yeah. And the legal system right. is complicated. And it's, look, it's a profession that most of- th-
0: Yeah, but let's say hypothetically, you're the president. Do you hire someone like Rudy Giuliani, who's a famous person? Do you hire someone who's a little bit younger and has more experience in dealing with the Southern District of New York?
1: I think if you're asking me specifically, should Donald Trump have hired Rudy Giuliani, I would answer no. And I would answer no for a variety of reasons. First of all, I think you do want to hire someone who knows a lot of the, the current folks who are in the office. Rudy Giuliani was in the with office. With some recency. Yes, exactly. He yeah. was in the office years ago. And like he so-
0: should have hired me, for example.
1: <laughs> I would hire you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I would, have declined, I would have declined the representation. Understood. But, but, okay, but is it a crony kind of thing? It shouldn't be true that you hire someone who was recently from the office, who was in the office, because that would help you in some way, That it doesn't seem just.
2: So in its best light, I think, and this is true when I was in the Justice Department as the principal deputy in the Deputy Attorney General's office, I often had former Justice Department officials call me who were representing defendants and representing banks or other entities that had issues with the Justice Department, what those clients are paying for is that lawyer's credibility
0: with the institution. What gives a lawyer credibility?
2: Well, I think,
1: you know, it's yeah. funny. When I when I started in the DA's office, Mr. Morgan Thau said to us, and, and this has stayed with me my, my entire career, but he said to us basically... You know, you'll know, you have tons of cases, but you only have one reputation. And how you handle cases and how you approach, whether it's defense lawyers, judges, everyone in the courtroom, that stays with you. And if you get a reputation as someone who's not truthful or who doesn't keep a promise or keep their commitment, that stays with you. But, and so... But, but, and you know, Bob Mueller said the matter? same thing
2: to me. I yes. think it matters. It I think it matters. If I called Explain you... Explain to
1: me how and it, it, if you, and it If I called you when you were U.S. attorney, which I would not have done, right? Yeah. So this is a bad... Because
0: we're, we're friends. Because
1: <laughs> we're friends. But if people who know one another and respect one another professionally, and so you don't have to have worked in the office, you don't have to have worked together, but if someone has a reputation as a straight shooter, somebody who's going to give you yeah. the good and the bad. The reputation matters. It matters. It, it, matters. Yes. it right. matters when you make that call and you basically say, my client wants to come in and talk to you. You know, what are we looking at? That conversation is critically important. Also, when we talk about recency, look, the laws change but, all the but, time but, but, also. But,
0: but is that is that right? Is that fair? If a defendant who's been charged has the luck of having a lawyer who has a good reputation in the office.
1: Right. You're asking a different question because yeah. it's G- not gets, luck. Gets, it's yeah, it's no. being able to afford well, someone know, like
0: You wonder. So, you know, a lot of people get charged and they hire like the local lawyer who, you know, maybe people in DA's office think is a jerk or stupid yeah. or not good. Right. And they don't get the same benefit. Is that fair?
1: No. I mean, I think no. the fundamental question you're asking is, like, do we represent people equally in the United States of America? Don't. And the answer is no. Right. 100% no. Right. Yes. I, I agree with that completely. But I think if we look at individual states, there is never enough funding for public defense. And okay. there are a lot of people who can't afford lawyers. People are routinely incarcerated seven days, 20 days, 30 days yeah. before they're even charged with a crime. Right. And there are many states where people are arraigned on crimes, meaning that they are brought before a judge or a magistrate judge who decides whether or not they're incarcerated without having a lawyer present. And that's because they're underfunded public defense systems. And so, look, I am a prosecutor. I think being a criminal prosecutor is critically important. I think that prosecutors are the defenders of public safety. But you cannot be a good prosecutor without a robust public defense system. And Absolutely we do true. not have one in America.
0: I totally agree. So time time is short. So we're going to do a lightning round, OK? OK. Ready?
2: Yes. Ready. Hi, I'm
0: Stevie Meredith from Long Beach, California, and I'd really love to have some clarification about collusion. It seems like I remember months ago learning that collusion is not a crime. So why are we still saying there was collusion? There was no collusion. Why are we clearing this up? Why are people being investigated for collusion? Help me out, please. I really love your podcast, and I know you have a good answer. Yeah, I don't. And Milgram does. Go.
1: Phoebe, I would love to give you some clarity, but I do not know where that word came from. As a criminal prosecutor, local, federal, and state, I've never heard it before. I think they mean conspiracy or aiding and abetting. Yep. Conspiracy to commit a crime is when two or more people agree to engage in a criminal act, they share the goal of that act, and one or more persons does something to further that that goal. And so that's conspiracy aiding and abetting is very similar where you know someone pre-Lisa is committing a crime and I'm helping them why? to do why so. Sorry. Well, hey. Why hey are you hold, me on and Lisa? hold on you, All right. <laughs> I would someone hypothetical, someone okay, <laughs> okay, man. okay, Phoebe, someone hypothetically is going to commit a crime and you can aid in abet either before or after the crime. It could be you could aid in abet after the crime to conceal the crime, but There is nothing I've ever heard of in a million years called collusion. Okay,
0: why has the word collusion captured everyone's attention? Where did it come from?
1: I don't know. I don't don't
0: know. know.
2: I don't know, but I would say that the conspiracy indictment that Bob Mueller and his team did put forward in the middle of February. Against whom? Against 13 Russian individuals and entities. They brought the case, and it was conspiracy To defraud the United States. Was
0: that collusion? So
2: I think it's the closest thing we've got thus far, right? It alleges that these individuals and entities from Russia put together a conspiracy to create personas, false personas on social media to put forward false information, to hide the Russian identities of these personas and to basically frustrate the U.S. government in the election laws, in the foreign agent registration laws, uh, and a whole bunch of other functions of the U.S. government. And the bottom line of that indictment is that those individuals and entities are alleged to have conspired to frustrate the U.S. government in their lawful actions.
0: Yes, great. But the question is- Collusion. This word collusion.
1: If we look at the letter that the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, sent to Robert Mueller, doesn't that letter say conspiracy?
0: Fine, but I'm asking a more fundamental question. This word collusion, yep. is it meaningless or not?
2: It's meaningful insofar as people can understand what it means for perhaps US citizens to agree with Russians or the Russian government to execute that conspiracy that's laid out in uh, or think the about it, Mueller
1: indictment. I totally agree with Lisa, but think about it even more broadly. Like the whole investigation is premised on this question of did the Russian government try to influence the American election and did members of the Trump campaign – do anything in cooperation, conspiring with the Russians to influence the election, either hacking the computer, the email servers, or coordinating the release of those emails, or coordinating social media, whatever question it is, that's the question. And so I think people have taken collusion as an easy way to say, was the Trump
2: campaign working with the Russian government? And that's a straw man. So So we shouldn't get hung up on the phrase collusion.
1: Hi, Preet. Love your show. This is Dan in San Diego, California. I wanted to ask you, what exactly is a constitutional crisis? On the news, when they've talked about
0: Trump firing Mueller, they bring up that it would mean a constitutional crisis. At first, I thought this was a general term, and
1: it didn't mean something specific, but everybody used and reused it so many times, I'm beginning to think there's some sort of legal precedent. What is a constitutional crisis? Thank you.
0: Okay, esteemed panel. Constitutional crisis. It gets raised all the time. The hell does that mean?
2: Fundamentally, it means that you know, we've got three branches of government that the founders set up, and it's when those, some number of those branches clash.
0: Don't they clash all the time, Lisa?
2: Actually, the founders set up so that there would be trade-offs, right? That there would be tension, sure. but not necessarily a clash,
0: If Robert Mueller gets fired, is that a constitutional crisis?
1: It's an interesting question, right? I mean, there are three branches of government, judicial, the judges, the executive, the president, and the Department of Justice, and then the legislative, which is Congress. And at some point, if Robert Mueller was fired, I mean, I think when people say it, you know, and you should jump in on this, but I think when people say it, they mean... Oh, I will jump in. (laughs) They mean, like the world will explode because the, the... What does it mean that it's
0: a crime? People bandied I about. think in this context, it it's
2: shorthand for the executive exceeding the power granted them by the founders, right? People talk about if the president were to fire or order Rod Rosenstein to fire Bob Mueller, it would be somehow exceeding his authority or putting us in a crisis where the rule of law was somehow under strain, right? So I think at, it, at its base, it means that we would be sending, by those actions, we'd be sending a signal both to the United States at large as well as internationally, the message that we're not a country governed by law, but by a man who thinks that right. the rule of law is fiat. <clears throat> I feel
1: like, I mean, I feel like we're bandying it around a lot. We're saying constitu- everything's a constitutional It's a very easy crisis. phrase to yeah. say. Yes. Yeah.
0: Right? Let me ask you both of you, and I know Lisa used to be the chief of staff to Bob Mueller, if Bob Mueller were to be fired, would you consider that to be a thing that precipitates a constitutional crisis?
2: It might be. I mean, I, I think it's... So, uh, I hate to be lawyerly about it, but it would de- depend on how it went. Oh, right. So no, That's here's the thing. That's a
0: crisis, Lisa. Well,
2: look, I've described it as it would be a gut punch to the rule of law because how, as you know, Preet, how it would have to actually happen would be for the president to order Rod Rosenstein who's the acting attorney general for the Russia investigation, to fire Robert Mueller.
0: Okay. Crisis, no?
2: Well, he would, as based on what we've seen thus far, it's likely Rod Rosenstein would refuse to fire him.
0: But what if he does not?
2: If he does not, and he fired Robert Mueller, if it were not for cause, if there were no basis, and and Rod Rosenstein has said publicly that there's nothing that he has seen thus far that would indicate there's a reason to fire uh, Robert Mueller, it would trigger a crisis because what it would indicate is the president is trying to control that investigation. And why that's a crisis— I'm sorry.
0: Is that already known? I think is, the question is it's, it's, the, it's, but there's the, the, a difference the crisis between crisis is already upon us or Well, not? there's
2: a difference between the president
1: wanting to do something and actually taking action. And so yeah. the idea that he wants to fire Robert Mueller is a terrible thing, but if he actually fired Robert Mueller, I think that's when the crisis comes okay. in. And part so, of it is that, that we haven't seen good cause okay. to so, justify so it.
0: What is the crisis?
2: So the crisis is Be- because yep.
0: because he has the authority to do it. He doesn't He actually doesn't. Well.
2: The legal experts say he's got the authority to order
0: Rod Rosenstein to fire him. Suppose that happens. Yep. Crisis or not?
2: Yes. Because it is the president of the United States trying to affect and control a criminal investigation where he is arguably within the ambit of that criminal investigation.
0: so, So then what should happen if the president does that?
1: Well, there are a couple of things, and there are different ways to think about this. I mean, one is that um, Congress could act, right? I mean— Could. Could. And and, and I, I, look, I'm not betting on them. I think the other question is, what does the American public do? And this is where I think it gets very interesting. Hi, Preet. This is Carrie Phillips, and I'm calling from Corvallis, Oregon. Um, I'm a recent devotee of your podcast, so I'm not sure if this is in your real wheelhouse, but if it is, I'd love to hear— um, over the last few years, a lot of us have learned how many ways our democracy depends on standards that aren't enforceable by law, uh, frequently discussed as norms, standard practices, traditions, etc. From your perspective, should any of these newly revealed frailties be remedied by new laws or regulations? And if so, which ones and how? Thanks.
0: Carrie, thanks for your question. You know, that's a thing that I've been thinking about and, and struggling to figure out for a while. And I think a lot of people in the country have been. It's the reason why I joined up with former governor of New Jersey, Christy Todd Whitman, you know, with the Brennan Center to put together this democracy task force to kind of come up with proposals along the lines that you are suggesting. So I think it's a very well presented question and people should be thinking about it a lot. Let me throw it to my friends here. What do you guys think?
1: What I think is extraordinary is watching President Trump has made me realize that for years from basically most of my life, there have been established norms that both political parties have followed. And I think we're seeing something that is really outside of okay. the norms. Like what? So most of the members of the the Trump cabinet, the things that they've done, spending more than $100,000 on offices, spending – taking first-class travel, that would not have flown in – Any Democratic or Republican administration. And those are small corruption examples. Yeah, but
0: is that that important?
1: Well, look, it's it's a sign of how you see the United States government and the people of the United States and whether or not you think that the people of the United States should be buying $130,000 offices. But I do think that if anything, we've seen that the last couple of years have shown us that there are actually norms that both political parties follow that are not being followed now.
2: Look, I think it's incredibly important that we uphold the norms and traditions that we've seen thus far in things like separation between the White House and the Justice Department on individual criminal investigative matters, not having a political push or influence on individual investigations. Those are incredibly important norms, not because of some bureaucratic reason, but so that people can have confidence that the most powerful institutions of the government, they're executing their powers in a way that's free from political influence. But at the end of the day, Kerry's question goes to whether or not we can solve this problem by codifying into law those soft norms or traditions. And I think, you know, frankly, my answer is going to be a little bit disappointing, which is no, I don't think that we can do that. I don't think we can do okay. that wholesale. Because at the end of the day, institutions are really people. They're the people who preside over those institutions and enforce and abide by those traditions. So some of my most important mentors as a prosecutor and as somebody who's worked in government for 20 years before I left government in 2017 was people as different as Janet Reno and Robert Mueller. Yeah, They were very different people, but they had at their core something that said, we got to follow the facts and the law, period, irrespective of what political party was in power. And if you don't have people who are focused on abiding by and following the norms and the institutions and upholding them, all the codification won't matter. So ultimately, I think that the enforcement of the law is a human exercise, and I think that's true because I also don't know what the alternative is because I'm not personally willing to give it over to an algorithm. I'm not going to put my faith. Well, in Well, it's not
0: an algorithm, like you know. So you, if you have a statute mm-hmm. or you have a guideline, is that enough, or is it important to have people who you know have a certain ethic?
2: But so both are true, right? So you have people who have to apply the law, to have to enforce the law, to okay. apply so, facts okay, to so, the law. Okay, so,
0: so how do you make sure you have the right people?
2: You have to have them steeped in a tradition and an ethic of an ethical responsibility to enforce the law and to do justice, not to get scalps. Can I push on in this a yeah, little bit please. too? Because here's my feeling. I
0: half
1: agree and I half think that we're... Look, one of the most discretionary aspects of our world is criminal prosecution Mm -hmm. and policing. It's all
0: discretion. It's all discretion. And
1: and let's take a more fundamental step, which is that when we look at unstructured and highly discretionary decision-making – we see that people often make mistakes. They have unconscious bias. There's racial discrimination. There are all kinds of outcomes that we don't want, right? And the ideal is the human plus information on how systems work, what we're doing, what are our outcomes. And I think, you know, in my home state, Senator Cory Booker I think says it best. In God We Trust, and from everyone else, we want data. Camden this year had 20 22 murders. When I was AG, they had 59. And the way we dropped. Murders in Camden was through data and through understanding what was happening and where we kept the human aspect. I I don't think we're disagreeing. I just want to say that it's a human system that can be much better than it is.
0: So here's a question from Twitter from Seamus Campbell who asks, "Which television show or movie do you think most accurately portrays the timeline of a prosecution, including the length of time between when an investigation begins and when the trial ends?" hashtag AskPreet. So the answer. So that is none, none, <laughs> absolutely. Because I'm not aware <laughs> of any of any criminal prosecution that takes place over a course of 42 minutes.
2: 42 minutes, of that right? So are that's you? the no, that's the uh, including the commercial breaks. Yes, yeah. I guess if we if we think about it like that, we would tell Seamus that
1: there are some prosecutions that happen very quickly when people plead guilty at arraignments. <laughs> right. It can happen in 30 seconds, which yes. I don't think it works really in our yeah. favor. It's not a good thing. <laughs> Let, but I think the process is extremely problematic. And if you looked at misdemeanors, they tend to take, and misdemeanors are Cases that are like, think about petty larceny, drug possession. They are about 70% of the entire American criminal justice system. People tend to be in the system for a year. If you look at felonies, okay, but, you know, but, uh, it's a year and a half. Yeah.
0: Serious crimes. How long should it take for that to be resolved?
1: Look, when the three of us start thinking about things taking a year, it's outrageous. None of us, nobody sitting in this room, and most people who are listening, could take 12 or more unexplained absences from work. Right. Yeah. If you start thinking about it, whether you're a witness or you're a victim, you're a defendant, the fact that cases get delayed and they get delayed because it's the way the system works, because the system yeah, is designed but, around okay. lawyer. But, that, that's totally to fair.
0: But sometimes it takes a time. Sophisticated crime. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. It's gonna, Lisa. It's, go, it's, yeah. Come in. Come in here, Lisa. So,
2: Look, to investigate, it's going to take some time. You're going to interview witnesses. You're going to get documents. You're going to analyze those. That's not, that's not a question of how long after you've been charged are you within the
1: criminal justice system. And I agree okay, investigations fair. can take years, and I think right. that's completely legitimate. The thing I think that I, I would say to the American public is that process is substance and that the fact that cases take so long to go through the American criminal justice system is ultimately a, a complete injustice and a lack of fairness.
0: You said process is substance. Pro- process true. is substance. So what do you mean by that?
1: So I think that we do not understand that the process through which people go through the criminal justice system actually impacts the fairness of the system. If people are in the system for a year, two years, three years, and look, that includes victims and witnesses as well as criminal defendants, there is a real question of fairness. First of all, it changes how cases get resolved. It changes whether or not cases can be prosecuted. I agree on the investigation. Investigations can take a long time, but after cases are charged, there is no reason why a case should be delayed for a year or more to get to trial. And I think all of us, if we're really serious about reforming the criminal justice system, we have to understand that moving people through the, the system quickly and fairly has to be a, a core value.
2: Look, I think Anne's right. Victims and their families who are waiting for justice to be done, right? And to, to, to be cogs in that wheel um, is something we owe victims and their families a lot better.
0: Let me ask this question. Do you believe that people who have been convicted of a crime serve their sentence, should they be permitted to vote? After they get out. Yes. Yes, 100%. And and so this is a big deal. And a lot of people are denied the franchise. What do you think about that, Lisa? I
2: think we got to look very hard at that. You know, there's a concept of paying your debt to society. And if we recognize that they've left incarceration, they've paid their debt, they've finished their probation time, I mean, we should recognize that.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's very odd that there are a lot of people who think that they shouldn't. You know, when there are other ways that people think, they should be reintegrated into society. But they can't vote. And and I understand that there are, you know, reasonable restrictions on rights that people have after they've been convicted of a felony in federal court. They can't possess a firearm, for example, and some other things. But the idea that they can't vote seems odd. To me, it seems it seems wrong to me.
1: Look, I think also the restrictions on housing are particularly problematic. The yeah. restrictions on financial aid, you can't get college assistance. I mean, the best thing for public safety is that people don't come back. And how do you do that? You get people housing, stable housing and
2: jobs. Well, the, the best indication of this stuff, Preet, is that we've seen kind of an unprecedented coming together across the political spectrum on criminal justice reform, which is another indication in our polarized politics that we ought to be looking very hard at this. Actually,
1: I mean... Uh, you know, that you haven't asked this question, but I would say this. I think that the across the political spectrum, left and right, there is a huge amount of consensus on these types of reforms to the criminal justice system. What I also think is that people in elected office are still afraid of criminal justice. And so I think we see a lack of courage when it comes to people actually voting for stuff like this. But, you know, across the American public, I think people understand <clears throat> that there's a need to improve the criminal justice system and make reforms like letting people vote, thinking about a lot of different significant issues such as bail and other things. But there's not a profile in courage necessarily with political leadership.
0: Look, you know, these issues of bail, incarceration, recidivism, how the process works for taking away someone's liberty, they're so important and and so misunderstood often. So I could talk to you guys forever about it, but unfortunately we have to go. But we should do this again sometime. Anne Milgram, Lisa Monaco, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It. You're the best. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Ann Milgram and Lisa Monaco. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag #AskPreet or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24 Preet. Or you can send me an email. To stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake Maccabee and B'nai Basti. I'm Preet Ferrara. Stay tuned.